Hello and welcome to Fertility Springboard, the podcast series brought to you by Fertility Help Hub. I'm Eloise, founder of Fertility Help Hub, and over the series I will be bringing you conversations with some of the most influential and inspiring professionals and experts around the world to arm you with useful and empowering thoughts and resources to ease your fertility journey. And don't forget to sign up to the newsletter to make sure you don't miss out on anything. It's packed full of inspiring interviews, resources, discounts and offers, competitions and real life stories. So I'm very excited today to be at Cornell, Wild Cornell in New York with Dr. Samantha Pfeiffer, who is kindly answering all of your questions that you've been sending in over the last few weeks. Um, and I'm excited to hear what she has to say. So welcome, Dr. Pfeiffer. Thank you. It's exciting to be here. So we'll start with the first topic, if that's okay with you, um, which is around seeking help and making that initial decision on a clinic and choosing a specialist. So I guess the first question is, at what point would you generally advise someone to look for specialist help? Sort of how long into the trying time frame would you think that it might be necessary? So general rule of thumb is in, um, we, we always go by the female age because fertility is, best predictor of, of fertility is female age. So if the female is under 35, then it's reasonable to try for a year before seeking help, assuming that menstrual cycles are regular, there aren't any obvious things in the history that could obviously make it difficult. For example, if you know the individual has had an ovary taken out or if the individual has had multiple abdominal surgeries and might be at risk of you know, scar tissue in, around the ovaries or if the individual has irregular menstrual cycles and they're not coming in a predictable fashion or if the male partner has a history of something that would jeopardize sperm production. So usually um, a year. Um, if the woman is over 35, then we generally recommend seeking a diagnostic evaluation after six months of attempting pregnancy. That makes complete sense. I think that's kind of in line with the UK as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess the difference with the UK is that we don't generally know about our fertile health early enough. Um, we don't tend to have gynecologists. Mm-hmm. And then it's not something that we necessarily check until we're into that zone of trying for a family. That's interesting. So, I mean, a lot of it's sort of common sense. I mean, you know, if your menstrual cycles are not regular, then it's not worthwhile waiting that long because Mm. it's not productive time. Um, You know, some of the other things one doesn't really know, you know, how do you know if something is is uh, concerning, but certainly if you've had any surgery and maybe an ovary removed or something of that nature, then that's cause for looking into things sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the menstrual cycle is really the key factor. Or, you know, it's horrible debilitating pain with cr- menstrual periods, you know, if that's something that's worthwhile saying, is everything okay? So those are things that are really sort of by symptoms fairly obvious. Um, you know, an evaluation may uncover things that were not suspected, but that's why you have an evaluation to say, is there something going on? But many things that, um, many things that we find are things that have not, um, would not have been recognized by symptoms alone. The other thing is any history of any sexually transmitted infections or if anyone had pelvic inflammatory disease that could um, cause tubal blockage to occur and may make it difficult to get pregnant. So those things are things that should alert someone that maybe an evaluation sooner. But those are by history. You know, if you've had those symptoms, that would be worthwhile seeking attention sooner. That makes complete sense. I guess for me personally, in my situation, um, six months went by with nothing happening. And I I think we both sort of assumed that it might be something that wasn't right with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually ended up being male factor, which yeah. we only knew from tests. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we've got to recognize it's, I always tell people it's a team sport. Um, and I think in most cultures people assume the woman is the person with the problem and we always have to stress that 50 percent of fertility issues are male-based so you know i think a team approach is appropriate to evaluate the male and the female 
as equal partners in this process and not to assume anything. Absolutely, yeah. I agree. Um, so what would be your sort of top words of wisdom or suggestions when people are choosing a fertility clinic or looking for a speci- specialist? Because when you look online, it can be confusing to see different success rates. I think it's hard to um, assess things necessarily that are online sometimes because people put their best foot forward. I mean, I'm always looking at Facebook going, oh gosh, everyone's life is so much more interesting than mine. Um, I think that it's helpful to have a clinic that maybe has a good reputation, that sees a fairly high volume, um, that is maybe you know, affiliated with a, a, a hospital or, or um, that is well known. And those are things we look for. I think if you just look at success rates, people can make their success rates look a lot better. A lot of times, you know, success rates can be misleading. People may not encourage everybody to do a certain treatment and say, look, our success is good, when in fact many of the patients were not directed to receive that specific treatment. So I think success rates can be difficult. I think if you look at success rates as published, Uh, they'll tell you how many cases the program sees. And if you have a very low volume, or if you have um, success rates where the older women are more successful at achieving a pregnancy than the younger people, you've got to wonder that doesn't make sense. And so those are things to look at. But, you know, I think that you have to make sure that the approach of the clinic is in line with your own philosophy. Some clinics are very aggressive and will, will... try and promote very aggressive treatments very quickly. Um, other, others may be more individualized care and may be more willing to go at a slower pace and work with the patient. So it, it's kind of a fit thing. It's sort of hard to assess. And you know, I think talking to people and finding out what they have done and what their treatments were is sort of a help with, is this philosophy in line with mine? And that's a helpful thing. It's hard to find a good Um, a place that you feel comfortable with, but it's sort of like opening up a phone book and picking a hairdresser. You know, do you you go look and say, hey, I like your hair, where did you go, you know? So I think it's similar. It's like, what is the philosophy and were the doctors um, reputable and were they did have good success rates in what they did and were people happy um, with the care they received? So those are all the things that I think are important. Sounds like good advice. Um, And obviously, um, you know, from seeing so many patients and I know from personal experience, it's a very difficult time and coping with the emotions that come with it is huge. Um, And I guess the uncertainty about whether it will work and how long it might take um, is really difficult to live with ongoing. Um, so do you have any recommendations on coping with that process? I mean, I think, first of all, making sure that this endeavor that you're undertaking is part of your life and not the focus of your life. I mean, I, people always say, well, I have gave up coffee, I gave up this, I gave up alcohol, we're not traveling because we're trying to get pregnant. And, you know, most people find that they've ditched their support and their comfort measures that make them feel human and, and, and enjoy enjoyable things that they like to do. So my first advice is don't change your life to exclude all of your creature comforts and make you happy. You know, no one ever found that drinking a cup of coffee a day or having some wine was prevent people from getting pregnant. I think exercise is a very important part of, you know, life and people find that that's a good stress reducer. So, you know, exercise is important. Now, if you're someone who is training for the Olympics and you're running, you know, doing 12 hours a day of exercise, that probably is a little excessive, but having exercise is important. Um, I think that making sure that you have time to do things that make you happier is really good and setting aside time, but not stopping everything and focusing purely on this. The other thing I find is that people, some people are on medications for anxiety or depression, and um, they think that, well, if I stop all these medications, that's good because I don't want to be on these medications when I get pregnant. And the problem is these medications are keeping you know, individuals happy and calm and, and reducing anxiety and stopping these medications when you're embarking upon a process that can lead to greater anxiety and depression is sometimes not the best thing. So I think working with the physician who is prescribing the medications to see, you know, where, where is a good middle of the road place to be? Um, so those are things I think are important. And I think that, you know, trying to control what you can control in your life, so you have some element of control, 
And I think also seeking help from a counselor is a very good thing to do. I think that um, spouses can be very helpful, but sometimes you need to talk to someone who's not the person that you are trying to have a baby with because they can give you some perspective and give you some guidance on, on your reacting to people and things like that. Um, Even if you just want to cry on someone's shoulder. If you want to cry on someone's shoulder. And then the other thing is, you know, people are always coming, maybe coming up to you and saying, oh, are you getting pregnant? You know, are you pregnant? You're not drinking, are you pregnant? And again, trying to maintain, you know, if you're not pregnant, it's okay to have a glass of wine or whatever. But also when people say these things to you, have an answer that deflects their question but doesn't, you know, um, insult them. You know, so have an answer like, oh, we're hoping to someday. Thank you for asking. Or I appreciate your interest. Thank you. Is that you're not inviting a conversation with these people, but saying, you know, I appreciate you saying that, but like, don't go there. So I think that's helpful so you don't have people constantly asking you those questions. So things like that can be helpful. And then finding a support group of people that have gone through what you've gone through or a, a close group of friends or family that are there for you um, as a support when you need it. Um, so those things I think are very important. I guess what I know people find in the community and something I found, even though I actually didn't know this community existed at the time, was um, triggers. So friends announcing pregnancy, seeing pregnancy announcements on social media, people saying it just happened so quickly, we didn't want it to happen that quickly. My sister's pregnant, she got married in June, which is amazing. So she's just 12 weeks, I think. And um, it happened very, very quickly for them. Mm -hmm. And so it was a very different kind of announcement to say mine and my husband's first pregnancy announcement, different from my parents, um, able to keep it to themselves until they wanted to say. Whereas I guess the problem with people knowing about treatment is they feel it's their business to ask when you're testing mm-hmm. and whether it's worked mm-hmm. because you may or may not have felt open about telling people yeah. what you're doing and it's it can be pretty obvious what you're doing because it's hard to hide it sometimes mm-hmm. especially if you're doing what I did and um, doing it abroad yeah I mean I think that you've got to find a way to have a cocoon and you know if if, if it helps some people find it helpful to talk about it some people don't want anyone to know but I think to have a something, if someone approaches you and says, oh, how was the test result? Say, you know what, we're not going to talk about it until then. I, I, I don't feel comfortable talking. I really appreciate your interest and I really appreciate your support. And I will let you know when we're ready to divulge that. You want to thank the people for caring because people say things basically because they care about you. They're not trying to be aggravating or, or, or trying to set you off. But I think that finding a way to acknowledge their support, but say, that's great. Let's go do something else because I, I don't want to talk about it. And I, I let's talk about something else together because I love to talk about this with you. But let's you know try and do that so people aren't bombarding you, but also not to eliminate those people who have been interested in, and care about you. And and leading on from there, how do you manage patients' expectations over something over something that's so emotionally charged? I think managing expectations is sort of one of the major things I do, you know, setting expectations. You know, you have this chance of getting pregnant. You know, it is a very good chance, but let's do one day at a time. You know, what can we expect? This is what I'd expect from the cycle. Um, This is what I'd expect for you to do this cycle. And trying to set expectations realistically. Um, You know, in someone who's early pregnancy, yes, you're pregnant, this is great. You still have an X percentage chance of miscarriage. You're not out of the woods yet just wait you know so little things like that I think can help it's hard because many times you know certainly we find things that are encouraging oh this looks terrific and then the expectations oh everything's perfect it's going to work and then when they find out something hasn't worked the crash is greater so I think it's really hard but I think what I find helpful is be direct and as truthful as possible and I'll say, if I'm worried about something, um, you're going to be right there worried with me. If I think everything is good, I'll tell you things are good. But really just saying what's going on is really important. I guess it's just so difficult, isn't it? Because people are obviously spending a lot of money doing mm-hmm. it. And so the and emotionally, uh, a lot of emotions behind it. So mm-hmm. those expectations are so great. And the crash can be awful. Right. Um <laughs> I had one round that didn't work and I felt like it was never ever going to work and Mm -hmm. couldn't understand why with my age and the male factor and it we don't know and it's just one of those unanswered questions where actually it doesn't it doesn't matter now now that things have moved on I think it's hard it's always hard 
dealing with bad news. I don't doesn't matter what it is. It's very difficult. Um, and unfortunately, I think humans tend to project like, oh, if it hasn't worked now, it's never going to work. And and I think people can often go into this what I call a vortex of negativity. It hasn't worked this time. It's never going to work next time. We're going to fail at this completely. I'm going to have to, you know, never have children. And you can easily go into this spiral. So that's why I think having a good support system is very helpful, and you know checks and balances, and and you know having people there and and planning for that. You know if it doesn't work, what is our game plan? So it's hard because no matter what you say, people have expectations in their head, and it's you know it, it's difficult to manage those. And a lot of what we do, there's a chance of success, but sometimes when we most expect it, it doesn't happen. When we least expect it, it does. So. In a way, I kind of feel that it's a little bit, you know, there's always exceptions to the rule, which is, it's tricky to manage those expectations in that setting. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. So for those people who might be starting out um, trying to conceive, uh, understanding a bit more about what's entailed with fertility treatment, obviously there are lots of different options depending on what's needed. Um, And being a world-renowned fertility specialist and surgeon, um, please could you explain a little bit more about initial consults through to maybe IUI or straight through to IVF and a bit more about the process involved at the hospital with egg retrieval, sperm deposit, results, etc. So, I mean, I think that um, there's many treatment options. The first thing I think is really important is to have a diagnosis. So the evaluation is important to establish what we're dealing with. You know, is there a male factor? Is there a female factor? Are we dealing with a tubal factor? Is there ovulation factor? So we know what we are going to treat because a lot of our treatments can target um, something that we found that's abnormal or that something that's um, wrong. So I, I think that that's the first thing. And then you can target your treatment. So if it's someone is not ovulating, then you can target that with medications to correct the ovulation disorder. So that's going to have a much higher chance of success if you, you know, are targeting something and treating a specific thing. If we look at um, unexplained infertility, then I think that's when everything appears normal and we don't know what's going on. And so those treatments can differ with between you know England or Europe and the United States. And and in the United States, we typically target doing clomid with insemination. Where I think, um, at least in my colleagues at the NHS, they favor a don't do anything for several years, couple years, two or three years, and then we'll do IVF. So a little bit the treatment options vary by region and country. Um, if we look at Um, treatment options, the mainstay of what we do to help would be a combination of intrauterine insemination, which involves taking the male sperm, washing it, it's not scrubbing it down with a brush, but selecting the actively moving sperm, and then placing that into the uterus, which is an office procedure, kind of like a pap smear. A small catheter is used to place the concentrated actively moving sperm in the uterus, so close to the fallopian tubes at the same, about the time that a woman is ovulating. And medications can be used to increase the number of eggs that are released. And do do patients tend to track that at home? Tracking ovulation, with even with fertility drugs, can be as simple as doing an ovulation predictor kit at home. Um, In some clinics, it is monitored by ultrasound and blood work. In some clinics, they just do blood work to monitor that. Um, And uh, in some clinics, we can actually time the day of ovulation by giving an injection that triggers ovulation when you have a follicle that's appropriate size. So there's not one way to do any of this, and a lot of it depends on the patient. It depends on you know, the, the location of the clinic. It depends on you know, insurance reimbursement. It depends on protocols. It depends on so many things. But the bottom line is as many ways of assessing what day someone's ovulating, even if they're taking medications. With injectable fertility drugs, it's important that really monitoring of estrogen levels and ultrasound is very important because we worry about the risk of multiples. But with the oral medications such as Clomid or Letrozole, that can be done as easily as with an ovulation predictor kit. And then so that, that the timing of the insemination, and the insemination involves a collection of sperm specimen, which there's many, many stories and movies about bad experiences doing that and how it, it can be um, 
not the best experience for the men sometimes, and, and many jokes have been made about collecting sperm in an office. No pressure. No pressure, yes. Pressure, and I, really here, and the magazines aren't good, and, you know, I think, it, you know, laughter sometimes can be the best approach yeah, to deal with a stressful situation. But um, the sperm is collected, and then the insemination is just an office procedure, and um, typically it's not uncomfortable. For some people, it can be a little, cervixes can be a little challenging to navigate, but it's fairly straightforward to do the insemination. And that's sort of the mainstay of what we have to treat people, and, and the philosophy is that we're putting a higher concentration of sperm closer to the fallopian tubes. And we're trying to get more ovulation, maybe one or two eggs rather than the one egg to increase the chance of egg and sperm finding each other. I always say that it's easier to find two needles in a haystack. I mean, one needle in a haystack, there's two you've hidden there. So that's sort of philosophy. And IVF is um, sort of the, um, it used to be the last treatment option we would try if we've exhausted all other options. And I think that as IVF has gotten better, um, it's used sooner in the um, treatment armamentarium because it is a diagnostic test and it is our best treatment. Um, And something else that's coming into um, play is that um, women who would like, maybe have started trying to have children a little bit later and would like to have several children one thing people are trying is doing IVF to bank embryos so that they can have maybe their first child at 38, and then at age 40, when they're ready for another one, they have embryos that were frozen at a younger age to use those rather than um, trying to use um, to get pregnant at the age of 40. So, you know, embryo banking is something that people are looking at. And one of the first questions we say to you know, a couple is, hey, how many children do you think you want to have? And if, you know, someone is 38 and say, well, we really are looking to have five children, I'm thinking, oh, well, we better bank embryos now. Whereas if 38 saying, we really just really want one child, we realize we're older and we just want to have one child, then I think, okay, a less aggressive approach may achieve the same end. So I think you have to kind of tailor the treatment to suit the, the couple. Um, but those are the mainstay of what we have to offer. And leading on from that, I guess... Um well, in the UK especially, there's been lots in the press around egg freezing. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Because lots of people seem to think that it might be a kind of a way to secure a family in the yeah. future. No guarantees about anything. So egg freezing, I think, is great. And actually, I was on the, um, the committee for the American Society of Reproductive Medicine when we published the document that said egg freezing is no longer experimental. And that was based on the fact that there are good data to say that eggs survive, 85 to 90% survive, um, and then the fertilization rates are similar to fresh eggs, the um, embryo development and pregnancy rates are similar to fresh eggs, So, and there don't seem to be an increased risk of birth defects in babies that were born from eggs that were frozen and thawed before fertilization. So I think it is a good technique. The question is, when do you use that technique? And I think that there's, you know, I think it is a good technique for many people, but it's not mandatory for everybody. So I think ideally egg freezing in the early to mid thirties is probably a good time to do that. I'm not a big proponent of burning egg freezing in 20 year olds because I think they may never use them. And the other thing is we really haven't frozen eggs for that long that we can tell you for certainty that they survive that long without damage. So the expectation is they should, but I think early you know, early 30s is probably ideal. Um, That's a time when you should get a very good number of eggs and the quality should be good. We know the quality of eggs and probably number of eggs starts to decline in the early to mid 30s and then decreases rapidly after 40. So you want to try and get the eggs frozen when you have a good number that are good quality. And did you say that the success rate of fertilizing um, an egg that's been frozen later down the line is similar to doing the fertilization with a fresh egg? It is very similar, yes. Now, sometimes you know, eggs don't do well with freezing. It's hard to predict who that's going to happen to. Um, but the success rate for freezing and thawing is about 85 to 90%. Um, the difference is that if you freeze eggs and thaw them, you are going to lose 10 to 15% of that number. So, you know, if I have a a patient who has a partner and says we want to freeze eggs, you know, but we're not ready to get pregnant now. I'm thinking, well, if you, you know, if you know you want to be together, you freeze embryos. You may have more of them to play with. So, because you don't lose 
that um, number, a certain number. So it's, it's a very good technique. It is a way to, I think of it as, you know, helping to, um, with kid number two, in someone who has their first pregnancy, you know, in the mid-30s or mid to late 30s. Um, I think it's always better to try and achieve a pregnancy without using the frozen eggs if you can, but certainly it's a nice fallback. If you have a woman who is under the age of 35 and freezes eggs, you want to have about 20. Um, if you can get 20 eggs, then that, you know, by some studies, that gives you about a 95% chance of having at least one live birth. Right. It's a lot of eggs to get, and the hard thing is sometimes not everybody's able to get 20 eggs, certainly in one cycle, and for some people it may take two or three cycles to get that many. Um, so I think those are things that have to be evaluated and discussed before embarking upon this. And I've certainly had patients who may have had you know, low numbers of eggs who said, I want to do it. And when we look at it and think, you know, the most you're probably going to get based on your looking at the ovaries is about five to you know, maybe six or seven per time of egg freezing. And that individual has said, you know what, that's not worth it to me. It's a lot to go through. And I don't think I want to do that. So I think it's an individual decision. I think people should not be made to feel that they should do it because it's an option. And for some people, it's a good option. For some people, not so much. Makes complete sense. Thank you. So um, ICSI over IVF, what are the kind of reasons why you would tend to go down that route versus... versus, So when you fertilize the eggs in an IVF um, cycle... You have the choice of fertilizing them by just putting the sperm and egg together and letting them you know, play in the sandbox together and have fertilization occur naturally. Or ICSI, which is to inject a sperm into each egg. And um, so ICSI traditionally is for a severe male factor when the concentrations or the motility of the sperm is, is significantly reduced. But there's other indications for ICSI. So it can be used, like for example, if you have eggs that have been frozen and then you thaw them and fertilize them, ICSI achieves a better fertilization rate and is a preferred technique. So anyone who's had eggs frozen, thawed, and then you're trying to fertilize them, they generally are, ICSI is a preferred approach because the fertilization rates are significantly better and probably the fertilization rate with insemination in that situation is poor, if to none. In individuals who are doing um, pre-implantation genetic testing on their embryos, so meaning looking, evaluating the embryo for its chromosome content, many programs feel that doing ICSI is a better approach because you don't have any contamination with sperm at the time from the sperm that's clustered around the egg. Couples who have normal appearing sperm but in a prior IVF cycle have actually had no fertilization or very poor fertilization may benefit from ICSI. And also some people feel that um, low morphology or low percent morphology is another indication where ICSI is a preferred approach. Um, So there's many indications where ICSI is definitely preferred over insemination um, for those reasons but it just is another way of achieving fertilization. Mm. A reader has asked, um, they have unexplained infertility or fertility, but could, it could be down to poor egg quality. So they've had two IUI rounds and one round of IVF. Is it still worth trying another round of IUI before doing another round of IVF? It's, it's sort of hard to answer that question directly without knowing the specifics. I think that if there's good fertilization with IVF, then IUI is not necessarily a bad approach. Um, you know, I think sometimes we feel that, oh, going backwards to a lesser treatment is less effective. But I think you've got to look at the situation. And, you know, sometimes if there is egg quality that's poor in the IVF lab, We've got to recognize that's an artificial situation, and the eggs sometimes don't like being in there. So maybe um, fertilization with IUI or doing IUI in some situations may be beneficial. Um, I think it's good to talk about those options with the healthcare provider and see what the thoughts are as they pertain to that you know specific individual. But certainly, 
you know, going sort of backwards per se is not necessarily a bad thing to do. Yeah. That you do hear, don't you, of people who have tried lots of different types of fertility treatment and maybe they have a child, maybe they don't through IVF um, or IUI. And then down the line, they end up having a child naturally. I mean, I think that, um, you know, less is more sometimes, and that's true. And, you know, IVF is a wonderful um, technique. It's really the basis of a lot of what we're able to do that we couldn't do years ago. It's fantastic. But like anything, it's an artificial situation. And, you know, I've had patients who have done terribly with IVF. I mean, really bad fertilization, bad embryo quality. It looks totally awful. And they've gotten pregnant with, you know, insemination or just having intercourse. So clearly it introduces another element and it's our judgment of what's going on is in an artificial situation. So sometimes it is better. If I had a pound for the amount of people who said to me after we had our first child, you never know, it may happen naturally next time. And I just said, I promise you, it won't. <laughs> for some people We've it won't. We've got no sperm, it won't. <laughs> but you know, I, I think that the one thing, you know, I, I've been in practice a very long time and I'm always surprised by the things that I see. And my mother was very funny. I was talking to her and I was saying, oh, I had an interesting situation I'd never seen before. And she said, you're almost 60. What do you mean you've never seen it before? There's gotta be a limit to what you're seeing that's new and have not seen before. And I'm like, you know, I keep seeing things every day that amaze me. So you never know, it's medicine and it's people and, and amazing things happen. And I guess also during that time, the techniques that have improved and how things have changed. Yeah, and even so sometimes despite all the things we have to offer, sometimes, you know, things happen that you had never expected that are amazing. So I'm always amazed every day. That's what I love about the field. It's just a wonderful field, um, you know, with wonderful people and it's really a joy to be involved in the care of people and get to know them it's really lovely it's the most amazing gift and life-changing thing that you can give anyone really isn't it yeah but to to be a part of that is fantastic even when it doesn't work that's a challenge and that's also a you know very bonding and wonderful experience and if you can help someone navigate a very difficult situation with a a negative outcome i feel like i've done i've done a lot and i i've I, that's something. It's one of my the challenges in what I do, and if I'm able to achieve that, I've, I feel like I've done I've done something good. And I guess also because it can take time, these oh, yeah. relationships you're building with your patients mm-hmm. can be quite long. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I think I first had a consultation with you in would have been 2016 at the beginning, and we're now coming into 2020. Yeah. So it's not an overnight thing, is it? No. It's and it, that's what I like about it because you you know when you get people who you see and then you know you see them back again and it's you know it's it's continuity is really lovely and, and catching up with people and um it's it's been it's really nice that's what i like about it you know just one and done you know that's why i would have a hard time going into something like general surgery where you're really there to do a procedure on people but you don't necessarily follow them long term in some circumstances you know but it's really nice you have a long ongoing relationship absolutely absolutely yeah Um, And then the next topic is common causes of fertility issues in patients you see. I know that's a very difficult question to answer, but what would you say is the most common case? You know, it's funny. I think um, we know that there's, you know, incidents of of different things, but I think um, what I see now as opposed to when I first started in practice is I see a lot more unexplained infertility I don't see as much tubal disease. I mean, that used to be the mainstay of what we saw and what we could do to treat is, you know, blocked fallopian tubes, and it's rare that we see that actually. Um, I think um, we see a lot of male factor, but part of that I'm in a center where they specialize in male factor, so we do see a lot of male factor cases here because that's one of the things we do, you know, we're known for. Is it a 50-50% chance of male versus female? 50%, 50-50, yeah. Yeah, and, it, it, you know, but a lot of people have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's rare that you have, this is the reason. It's oftentimes a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So, but it's, you know, basically ovulation disorders, unexplained infertility, male factor, um, age-related issues, those are the common things that we typically see. And what about things like PCOS and endometriosis? PCOS ovulation disorders. So PCOS is, you know, uh, 10% of the population has PCOS in many studies, 8 to 10%. So it's a very common reason why people's cycles are irregular. Um, so that's something that we see pretty frequently. Uh, and that's often those individuals don't, 
you know, they end up getting pregnant without doing IVF because their ovulation is disrupted and you can fix that. Um, and then endometriosis, we see some endometriosis, but um, we used to treat endometriosis with surgery. Now we're doing less of surgery and more IVF. So it's one of the reasons for um, certainly uh, helping people get pregnant with and treating with IVF. But we see that too. Yeah. But I think I'm sort of surprised most at the, the I would say unexplained infertility is a huge part of what we see. I guess that's a really difficult one because people want answers, don't they? If oh, they, they feel they like get, there's... Yeah. A diagnosed problem, then oh, no, there's a I fix know. and a solution. I know. Oh, what do you mean you don't know what's going on? It's like, well, yeah, we don't. But the success rates for unexplained infertility are actually very good. Mm. That sort of amazes me. If you take, you know, people who have tubal factor fertility or in unexplained infertility, you'd think that tubal factor would do much better with IVF because you're bypassing the tubes. Well, the tubes are blocked, let's go around them, and that should work really well. And actually, unexplained infertility has a very good chance of success. And so it's sort of a misnomer. I wish we could called it something else rather than unexplained because people would accept it better but they don't like they hate that word most patients like no don't say unexplained infertility or i've had people frankly burst into tears in my office no not that so it's it's a hard it's a word that i think is not a helpful word to use for people i i think you can't say that any situation is worse than the other because any situation that makes it difficult is a challenge and you know i think people in general can become very competitive um, and I think there's a lot of resentment as to why am I going through this? Why, why me? Um, I mean, those are all the natural things that mm-hmm. people hear with any chronic disease. You know, why do I have to deal with this? This is, you know, and I think it's, it's, it's really the challenge with having to navigate something that you know, you don't know the outcome. It's, you know, not, no one's going to say, listen, you know, this is, this is when you will be successful. So it's very difficult dealing with that uncertainty and, you know, everyone around me seems to be getting pregnant. Well, probably aren't. And I always, you know, I think um, it, it makes it very challenging because it appears that way. And it's it's emotionally very difficult. But I think it's hard too because you're 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 in a bad space and you oftentimes don't react the way that you normally would. I mean, you know, I think if if someone is stressed, they're not going to be the same as they normally are, and not as you know eager to to others first so I think it's it's a difficult situation it really is I think I've also found recently when when IVF worked um, I naively didn't really think about the risk of miscarriage and a lot of friends of a great deal of my friends who got pregnant naturally straight away mm-hmm. um, have had miscarriages in between yeah. some have had a string of them mm-hmm. and that can be of course as devastating as not getting pregnant in the first place so yeah um, it it is it's I mean I think miscarriages so the funny thing about miscarriage is that no one talks about it and then I found patients who've had a miscarriage and and you feel like how why is this happening to me I feel so alone and then you know I'll say go talk to your friends I bet many have had miscarriages and they come back and say I have all my friends have had miscarriage I didn't realize that so it's something that's very common. It happens, you know. If you know the general, on average, it's about a twenty-five percent chance of miscarriage in a, you know, woman who's sort of under the age of forty. Um, that's one in four. You know, I always tell to people, would you buy a car if you knew there's a one in four chance it would conk out on you before you left the parking lot? No, it's a terrible. You know, that's not a good success rate. But it's a seventy-five percent chance of being successful. And for many people undergoing treatments, or just you know, looking at the chance of pregnancy, the 75% chance of being successful is a hugely positive number. But miscarriages occur, and they're just often bad luck. You know, you finally are pregnant, and then the miscarriage happens. And what I find is most people find it very emotionally devastating. And on the one hand, you sort of, you know, they're sort of thinking, well, I'm only, you know, five and a half, six weeks pregnant. Why am I so upset about this? It's a very early in the pregnancy. You know, it's, at least it's not later, but it doesn't matter. Whenever you are having a miscarriage, it's devastating. And um, so I think that's always something that's hard and people forget. And that's why, you know, managing expectations. Yes, you're pregnant, that's great. But you're only five weeks pregnant. You've got, you know, a 20, 25% chance this pregnancy will not make it. Let's don't, you know, don't put this on Facebook. Don't tell everyone you know. Just wait. Things look good, but we need to wait and see. So those are things that are sort of very important to remind people, you know, yes, you've gotten this, this is fantastic, but let's be cautiously optimistic.
So a reader has asked if you can help men too, and are, are there any particular ways men can improve sperm morphology? So I think typically a reproductive endocrinologist does not directly take care of men. We do the screening test to ascertain the semen analysis, take a brief history, um, and then you know our role is to direct the male to a male reproductive specialist, typically a urologist. Um, in the United States, there are urologists that have done additional training in infertility and andrology. They have an expertise in that area. And, you know, to direct to see if there's any medical issues going on with the male, if their medications are taken, which could affect their sperm quality, and to do a semen analysis and ascertain if the values are in the normal range or not. If the semen analysis is abnormal, then we generally refer that individual for evaluation, or if there's anything in their history that's abnormal, we would refer to a urologist for evaluation. And then morphology is a funny thing. I mean, morphology, if every all the other sperm parameters are normal, so the other sperm parameters are volume of the ejaculate, which is typically less than a teaspoonful, it's not a whole cupful, the concentration of sperm, and the motility percent of sperm that are moving, and then morphology is the other parameter we look at, and that's the appearance of the sperm. And abnormal morphology does not correlate with abnormal-looking children. It really correlates with fertilization rate in IVF. So if you have all the parameters are normal, but the morphology is abnormal, that should not preclude doing IUI. It's just a factor, but if IVF is, is the path, then we do look at morphology, and if the morphology is abnormal by the strict criteria or Kruger criteria, then typically ICSI is recommended for fertilization. So we typically don't worry about abnormal morphology if all the other parameters are normal. It doesn't really play a role. Okay, that's really useful. Thank you. There's a lot actually on in the trying to conceive community um, around women doing it on their own um i think maybe more so than in the past mm -hmm. which is amazing um and hats off to them as well i think it's great um so what percentage and also sorry um around gay couples using surrogates and mm. egg donors um so what percentage of patients or, or how many patients do you see who are heterosexual couples gay or single women I mean, I think it mix. It's hard to know exactly what percentage, but we see all of the above. <clears throat> um, I think that we see a lot of single women and a lot of um, same-sex couples who are women um, who clearly need a sperm donor or a sperm from some source, either a known donor or an anonymous donor. Um, and we see a lot of, obviously, a fair number of, of those individuals and also single women who just don't have a partner and decide they want to get pregnant on their own. Um, so we see that a lot. And we also see um, men seeking um, IVF and then surrogacy. In New York, paid surrogacy is not legal. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I moved to New York and I'm like, what do you mean we can't do surrogacy? Because in Philadelphia it was very legal. So, I found so it just that depends on state. It. It's state to state. There's some states where it's <clears throat> frankly illegal. New York, actually, if you have altruistic surrogacy, where you sort of have a family member who um, is volunteering to carry a pregnancy, um, then that is, that is legal. But paid surrogacy, gestational surrogacy, is illegal. And there's some states where it's legal, some states where every form of surrogacy is illegal. Even if it's just expenses paid? It doesn't Same matter. Thing. It's paid surrogacy. Right. You're paying expenses for someone. So um, your financial reimbursement for services performed. So it's, it's very interesting. So it's, and it's spotty across the United States. Now, in most of Europe, surrogacy is not legal. And um, I don't know about England, but I think it's, it's not legal in, in some of the countries. And that's why uterus transplant has become um, an option for many individuals, um, those individuals who are female and who don't have a functioning uterus. Uterus transplant is not currently being advocated for anything but couples who have uh, uterine factor infertility. So um, I don't know what's going to happen in the future with that, but I think that you know, their surrogacy is certainly a viable option for male-male couples. Okay, great. Um, and then a kind of holistic well-being. Do you believe that supplements, I know you mentioned exercise before, and nutrition play a role in egg quality and then potential success? I think that being healthy is important. I think um, there's pretty good data that 
people that have severe health issues, um, in particular obesity, may have challenges and that may impact many factors related to the fertility process. So in individuals who are obese, I think there is reason to suggest weight loss prior to going through treatment. Um, for individuals who are unhealthy for other reasons, certainly making sure that all the medical conditions are optimized is really important. Making the thyroid, you know, if there's thyroid disease or if there's, you know, gastrointestinal problems or high blood pressure or anything of that nature, even like asthma, make sure that everything is optimized is really important. Um, as far as nutritional supplements, there's some supplements people have advocated, you know, DHA and CoQ10. Um, some of the data suggests that those could potentially be helpful, but not all the data support their use. Um, I think that many people use vitamins as a surrogate for being healthy. Like, oh, I don't not exercise, I'm a little overweight, and I don't want to move around, but I'll just take a vitamin. That'll it doesn't correct all that stuff. So. I think that you know use of supplements can be very can be helpful. It's not mandatory, but I think that having a you know having a woman who is in good health and eats well and gets exercise, I think is really paramount. What about taking things like folic acid to prepare your body for potential pregnancy? Folic acid has the only supplement that really has been conclusively shown to have a positive impact and it decreases the risk of neural tube defects during pregnancy. So it's not clear that it helps before you get pregnant, but certainly an individual who's pregnant should take folic acid because it does decrease the risk of say spina bifida and those things of that nature. So. Um, that's important. And in people who've had a history of a baby or a family history of a baby with a neural tube defect, additional folic acid is certainly recommended. Um, obviously, when you're going through fertility treatment, hormones can be, it can be difficult to manage your hormones and cr cry <laughs> over anything um, and potentially argue with people or get upset over things that you may not have done if you weren't um, going through treatment have you got any recommendations on how this is some, something that somebody asked have you got any, any recommendations on how to manage hormones either holistically or medically well, I think if someone's going through IVF the hormone levels are going to be fairly high and I find that um, IVF itself is kind of stressful so I never actually know if it's the hormones or the stress of doing IVF or both and I, realistically I think it's a little bit of both um you know, the hormones can make you feel very bloated and, and, and the process can be very stressful and it can sort of bring up thoughts of, you know, why do I have to do this? Why me? Why can't I just get pregnant easily like everybody else I know? Those kind of sort of thoughts. Feeling like a failure, that kind like of thing. So it brings up a lot of that stuff. I, I think that, um, you know, really making sure that during an IVF cycle, if you're doing that, that you really don't have any other obligations and mm. that you're not putting yourself at risk of failure. Like I tell people if they got a big presentation at work, don't do IVF that month. That's a bad idea. <laughs> you want to have energy to focus on, you know, taking care of yourself and, and, and doing nice things for yourself. Um, and then also don't put, your, put yourself in a situation where you're going to be aggravated. Um, you know, so avoid seeing people that aggravate you, you know, and, and really limiting what you have to do. Um, and that's sort of the best thing to prepare for that. You know, know what your triggers are and try and set yourself up so you don't have to be at, you know, look, um, in a bad situation. That's really good advice. I was recently talking um, about my personal experience at the fertility show in London last mm -hmm. month um, about IVF abroad. Mm -hmm. There's lots of people there were looking into options for treatment abroad mm -hmm. and also um, around having donor-conceived children. And... IVF abroad, I was saying that actually for me, it was good to be away from work and the stresses of work and be able to come in in my own time every day or every other day for my scans, etc., blood work at my leisure mm -hmm. rather than stressing about a big job on top of that mm -hmm. and the pressures that come with it yeah. and answering to a boss and updating them. Mm -hmm. I mean, equally, you still have that when you get back and they yeah. want to know what's happened and you feel you need to tell them straight away. So that doesn't totally disappear. But also, um, my advice at the show was to work out 
as a couple, if you're doing it together, um, what you're going to tell people. Mm -hmm. So make sure that you are telling people the same thing, friends, for example. Because if one of you is being totally transparent and the other isn't, which sometimes happened in my case, Mm -hmm. it's really difficult to know who knows what. Mm -hmm. um, And then you start to feel as though you're kind of doing different things Mm -hmm. and you get more and more questions. As you said, it's coming from a lovely place, Mm -hmm. but it's it can be too much it can be too suffocating when you're bombarded with messages asking how it's going yeah i think also saying things don't vary far from the truth i mean if you're going to do something like that nature keep the story simple and you know don't say i'm going to have a hip replacement no i think go and just say things that are close enough to the truth that the story is consistent but that you have a, a good you know this is what i'm doing and again have a nice answer for Thank you for your question. Thank you for concern. But you know we're not going to go there this this time. You know this let's this is my wall. Don't don't go in there. I don't want you to talk about that in a lovely way. Just to acknowledge that people are out of kindness saying things and and how to you know say that's I appreciate it, but I don't want to talk about it right now. I even wanted to cover up being in New York so much the second time after the first time failed. We didn't tell any of our friends mm-hmm. at all. You just disappeared off the face Just of disappeared the for two weeks. <laughs> and um, it was very hard to disguise. Yeah. I was replying to messages at times where it would look like what it wouldn't doing? be strange for me to be up. Morning. Yeah. And also making sure I didn't post any pictures on social mm. media because yeah. I didn't want people knowing where I was. Yeah, I mean, those. I, mean, I think it's all that's important. But again, it's cocooning. Like, how can I make myself feel good without alienating everybody I know, but saying, like, you know, now's the time I need to just focus on me. I appreciate everyone out there. But, you know, did not now. Yeah. At what point, for, and what, for what reason, would you advise considering donor eggs, donor sperm, or donor embryos? So, I mean, I think donor, donor is an option if your own gametes are not helping you. So, you know, certainly in couples where um, if the woman has egg quality that is not correctable or lack of eggs or um, age factor, then donor egg may be a very good option. or individuals who have primary ovarian insufficiency, otherwise known as premature ovarian failure. Donor egg is really the only option in that situation. Um, and then for you know donor sperm, clearly if there's sperm challenges or uh, lack of sperm or failure to acquire, get sperm at a, maybe a surgical procedure at IVF. So those are things when donor sperm would be useful. Donor embryos, you know, I think there's a market for donor embryos, but I think it hasn't taken off as much as people have thought it would. Um, A lot of the embryos that people have amassed were the ones that are left over. They may not be as good quality. The better ones are put back, and some people may have some in the freezer from a while ago that they haven't used, and it's unclear you know, are they they good quality? And, And there's some concerns about you know, there's very, at least in the United States, very strict regulations on how tissue that's donated to another individual should be screened. And a lot of these embryos were not screened with the intention of giving them to somebody else. So I, I think that donor embryo is not as, has not taken off as well as it would potentially have otherwise. Um, there's some people that have gotten pregnant with donor embryos and I don't want to, I think it's a, it's an option for many people. I just think it's hard to find donor embryos that are available. That's my concern with that. Um, but it has worked. You know, it's a, it's a, it's an option for many people. It's just, I think it's the scarcity of donor embryos available. That's my, that's a concern with that. Um, and for those reasons I enumerated on. Um, but I think that, you know, those are, they're very good options for people. I think that being ready to accept a donor gamete, either sperm or egg or embryo, is something that is something that really has to be addressed. Um, and especially if one of the partners is amenable and the other is not. So I think working through that and remembering that it's a team sport and everyone's on the same page, but sometimes counseling can be very helpful in accepting that. I think that um, donor gametes are not for everybody. I mean, for some people, it's a really hard stop no. 
Um, for others, it's a process to come to that as being an acceptable option. So it's a very personal decision. I think counseling can be helpful, tincture of time. You know, we have many patients who have failed to achieve a pregnancy and they're not interested in using donor gametes. And and then, you know, after time, whether it's months or years, come back and say, yeah, I thought about it and I think that's what I want to do. But it, it takes time to come to that. Um, like anything, it's a really good option, but it's not an option that's good for everybody. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. When I was talking about it at the fertility show, mm-hmm. um, that was very much apparent, but also... <clears throat> my story sort of um, has helped lots of people who are considering donation because three years down the line, mine and my husband's feelings around it has... When I say changed, I don't mean changed in terms of whether it's right or not for us. Yeah. It, it yeah. is, of course, right because we now have our family, so for us it's been great. Mm-hmm. But the way we've perceived it and how we talk about it has changed. Mm-hmm. So at the beginning it was very much a kind of, this is our only option, it almost felt secondary, which mm-hmm. sounds awful to say, yeah. but we were in, going through a grieving process mm-hmm. of um, his genetics. Yeah. And it's something we kept very, very private at first. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hard for me because I really wanted to talk about it because I'm just that sort of person who mm-hmm. likes to talk and... Really? <laughs> and he doesn't. <laughs> So I couldn't resist. <laughs> couldn't resist. It's true. Um, so I wear my heart on my sleeve and he doesn't. He's yeah. private. Through starting this, he has totally changed. Yeah. Um, and he absolutely loves the fact that it's helping people or encouraging people to be able to talk about it mm-hmm. and not feel it feel as though it's something that um, is an inferior choice yeah. or something that should be shameful which is an awful word um but the more it's talked about kind of the better mm-hmm. in a way um and so i actually had forgotten who knew out of our friend yeah and then i made it public through fertility mm-hmm. help up and so some friends came to me and said wow just seen your post didn't know yeah and it doesn't bother me anymore because yeah. we're telling our children yeah we're already telling our yeah. oldest yeah. and we've got various books to help with that process which i think is key yeah. because we want them to grow up for us anyway yeah. we want them to grow up knowing no. exactly mm-hmm. so it's not sitting them down when they're teenagers and big shock yeah um and again this is just personal choice um and another personal choice is whether you pick an open donor or an anonymous donor mm-hmm. in the uk and it's only open open yeah. now mm-hmm. um my husband and i both felt we wanted to pick an open donor from the beginning so yeah. it's actually something that was quite easy to navigate mm-hmm. but i know lots of I've, I've heard of couples where they may have differences of opinions on mm-hmm. it and i think the other thing that's coming to light from people i've been speaking to is the world the world the way the world's changing and everyone's a click away and with ancestry mm-hmm. etc there may not be anything as anonymous in the future. Well, there's a wonderful book called Inheritance that's been published. I don't know if you've read about it. Oh. It's a great book. It's um, it's Inheritance, and it's about um, an individual who, through Ancestry.com or some similar type of um, um, blood test, found out that her father was not her biologic father. And it's her journey to discover how that happened and how, you know... And it, it's a very interesting book, and it, um, but it does highlight the fact that, you know, anonymous is not anonymous. And, and that's one of the struggles we have with our donor population, the women. I, I can't address the sperm donors as effectively, but, you know, we have a donor program, and, and we all, you know, counsel our, our women who are anonymous egg donors, as most of the Northeast is, that, you know, anonymous is yes, but anonymous maybe not anonymous in the future, and that's something that's a reality of, of the world we live in. So I think that it's something um, that's, that is important, and I think it's good to, you know, figure out a plan for how to tell the children. Um, I think it's good that, you know, you have a consistent voice because you don't want your kid to find out from a cousin on a playground when they're 12, oh, yeah, you know, this did you know? And I think that also it's to perceive it as, as not a secondary option, but as an option. Um, and I, you know, I have a, a, um, a wonderful story of a, you know, a patient who, um, you know, was basically came, we came to the conclusion that donor egg was the right thing. And, uh, and she, you know, it was, it's always hard to find that out. And uh, she had a, a, a work colleague who, she didn't know had done donor egg 
and uh, she was talking to her and the woman said well you know do you see those two kids running up and down the basketball court you see they look just exactly like me she said well yeah your kids she said they're done right babies she said she was taken aback by that and all of a sudden it was like oh my gosh you know and it became a reality that it wasn't a strange thing to do that this is someone who she had known for a number of years who she respected who she had you know seen her family and been part of her family you know activities and and it was she said it was a shock to me to see that people can have normal lives and have you know children conceived through donor gametes and she said it was an eye opening thing like oh that's something I, I could envision doing because I see it as I see I'm living it with my you know my colleague and so it was a very interesting story and her her coming to terms with it on that level but I think that um, as I said it's not for everybody but for people that it appeals to I think it's a wonderful option and how to reconcile that with what's going on and how it fits into your life and how it fits into the you know your you and your partner is very important absolutely yeah but i think it's you know it can be it can be a great option for many people but i still think for some people it's not acceptable and i think that that's okay too and people shouldn't be felt that they have to consider that and that's another thing i think it's lovely that we have choices and no one has, should feel you know that is a a railroad into that choice it's it's an act of choice that has to suit absolutely I think the other thing that I've come to realize is that when you're first starting that process um it's about you as a couple Mm -hmm. and you're just thinking about getting pregnant Mm -hmm. and then you don't really think past when the child arrives Mm -hmm. and it's not like so it's a continuous journey um, because Life with children is a yeah, <laughs> um, so difficult conversations will come up. Yeah, and okay, my, yeah. you know, my husband always says to me, "I'm worried about them saying when they're teenagers, well, you're not my real dad." And I said, "Well, they'll probably say to me, I wish you weren't my mom.' Yeah, because exactly. I used to say horrible yeah. things yeah. to my mother." Yeah. Oh yeah, we all have done that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's true. But you know, I think um, the funny thing about you know pregnancy is people say, "Well, I'm just so worried this, but when I get to the next stage, I'm going to be fine." I'm like, yeah. Just remember, this is life, so you're going to worry. Is the kid going to wake up in the morning? Is the kid going to brush his teeth? Is the kid going to look both ways before he crosses the street? So at every stage, of, you know, you're always, there's always a worry about the next stage. Mm. Absolutely. Um, okay, so just one more question on that. Um, and Arida said that her embryos are good at day three. They're not necessarily making it to day five. So, again, it's, you can't obviously consult on a personal basis, but could that be a, an indication that donor eggs could be another option? I mean, I think that's always a tricky you know, tricky situation we see, and, you know, it always raises a question, is a day three transfer appropriate? Is there something going on with the eggs? Is there something going on with the stimulation? You know, is donor egg an option? So these are all things that um, are certainly to be considered and it really depends on the individual situation but thinking of all of those things but seeing that you know the not surviving to day five is always a tricky thing it's hard to know what does that mean would day five be preferable day five currently is felt to be a good idea because you can better select which embryo is more likely to survive um you know i always tell people it's like picking the winner of the New York City Marathon, you're more likely to pick the winner at the 20-mile mark versus a two-mile mark. So it just gives you another data point to say, oh, they all look good today, but what's going to look good on day five? Which one is the better one? And there with the thought of reducing the number you put back. Um, but I think that we recognize that you know some people don't have good embryo development beyond day three, and you always wonder, is, you know, is that because there really is a problem, or is that because of you know all of the other factors I just listed so it's always a tricky thing to know the answer to but yeah. I think you have to look at everything and, and really come up with for this individual you know what does this what can we do totally great thank you so much so just to end um do you have any words of encouragement wisdom or anything pioneering that's going on in the world of fertility that you might want to end with I, mean, I think that there's really the big advances now are looking at, you know, things in genetics. That's big. Um, I think that, you know, t- deciding what the role for pre-implantation genetic testing is. Is it really a useful thing? Is it going to help us? Is it something that we can use in a specific way to be beneficial? 
um, you know, I think advances in in uh, genetic uh, sorting out genetic issues and and looking at um, genetic causes of infertility or genetic causes of embryo development issues. Those are sort of things where I think a lot of effort is being placed. I think that um, you know we don't really understand implantation because it's very difficult to study. Um, so that's something I think we, is a good area of research to focus on. Um, and then the other thing that I think is something that is sort of, at this point, a little bit of a pie in the sky is, you know, can stem cells be used to generate eggs and sperm? And for those people that don't have eggs or sperm, are there ways, other ways of acquiring them? Wow. And those are things that, you know, haven't been successfully done in humans yet, but that's always something that people would are thinking, could that be possible? And it's unclear at what point that will be possible or if it ever will be. But those are things that I think are things we're looking at. But I think if you look at infertility, everything's on a very cellular and and, uh, and uh, you know genetic line right now. That's where the focus is. You know, 30 years ago we were focusing on cervical mucus and how to make it better. And uh, nowadays, that now we're beyond the cervical mucus. We're looking at the genes and the DNA and the embryos and eggs themselves. So it's um, it's there's so much more we have yet to learn. But it's such an exciting field. And if you think what's happened in those 30 years, what's going to happen oh, in the next 20? Well, Louise Brown was born 41 years ago. Yeah. And that was, you know, um, that was an amazing, amazing event. And, I met her at the fertility show. Oh. She was talking about what it was like to be... Well, for the her parents, they hated media. it. Oh, Absolutely sure hated did. the media. Well, I mean, the not- I, mean, I mean, so many people who are thrust into the spotlight and the media spotlight I think it's I I can't imagine unfortunately not um, which is lovely but I can't imagine having to all of a sudden have every everything you do observed and followed and and critiqued I mean I think it's very difficult so I'm 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 sure but you know if you think about it um, they were pioneers and they did an amazing thing to advance science and and Louise Brown has been nothing but lovely and kind and wonderful in going and talking to people and and sharing her story with people and uh, um, I've not met her personally but many people who I know have met her personally are just delighted and what what a wonderful person and you know it takes a lot to put everything on your sleeve and go out and meet with people and it's you know people are so excited to meet with her I mean you know here she was the first baby ever I mean you know that's that's incredible so I think that um I, I think having that famous and having all the media attention is very difficult, and I don't know how people handle that very well. But Louise Brown has done a lovely job, and it was a, a treat to hear her speak. Great. Thank yeah. you so much oh, for your welcome. time. It's my pleasure. That's wonderful, and um, no doubt will help many, many people. So thank you so much for it's your my time. my pleasure.